Welcome to Guest of the Year. I'm the host. My name's Mike. Joining us as the setlist curator is writer Nick Palmgarten. Nick has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2005. In addition to a comprehensive piece about the Dead's touring years, legacy, and his own personal history with the band, entitled Deadhead, Nick has covered politics, other bands, food, and much more. The Intangibles, his memoir about a beer hockey league, comes out next year from Penguin Press. Welcome, Nick. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. This week's prize pack is provided by 492 Vintage, which is run by former Guest of the Year contestant Barry. The roots of 492 Vintage date back to when Barry was in high school and began collecting concert tees, records, and books. During COVID, Barry realized how much he'd accumulated and began selling his lot tees and various Grateful Dead ephemera on his Etsy store. You can use the link in the bio to browse Barry's dynamic collection. Thanks so much, Barry. Thanks, Nick. And of course, thanks to Mason for curating the prize packs. All right, here's how the game works. We'll play the first part of a Grateful Dead live track, and each contestant will use the messaging system to silently guess which year the performance is from. Contestants, who are all in a video conference together, can message in their guesses at any time during the clip or in the 10 seconds after it concludes. Whoever is furthest from the correct year is eliminated. The last two deadheads standing will have a best of three series to determine a winner. We've got our returning champion, Mateo, here with us, and we'll meet the rest of the deadheads in a moment. But first, without further ado, The Grateful Dead. There was a wealthy merchant in London, he did dwell. He had a beautiful daughter, the truth you are told. As we heard a plenty in men of high degree, number Jack the sailor, true love air could be. Oh, her true love air could be. Now Jack is gonna sail in with trouble on his left his native country and his darling girl behind. Oh, his darling girl behind. Oh, to a tailor shop and rest man's rain. I'm born a vessel to convey yourself away. Oh, convey yourself away. the guesses are in it was a jack at the cleveland music hall on november 20th 1978 fun jack there nick uh why'd you choose that one uh it's it's kind of it's a bit of a gimmick maybe but it's it's such a strange show um this this set it's a second set that begins with the following set list it's uh jam drums jam jack playing in the band 
slam jam shakedown. And my understanding is that uh, Bob Weir was sick. Like he was puking backstage and unable to come on. So they kind of come on and just kind of do this random set, which is not really characteristic of any era. So in, in a way it's, it's, a, it's, it's conceived of as a way to trick you guys. But as I was listening to it just now, I heard elements that would be very much that year, 78, you know, which I'm happy to talk about, but I like hearing you guys talk about why you think that is. Um, I, I consider some of these shows that are a little different that have like this one, one off feel about them that are not even era specific that, you know, every couple of years you have it or every year you have a couple shows that are like, what was this thing? It's different. I call them yellow lobsters. Um, <laughs> and, and this is one of my favorite yellow lobsters. It's just a weird mood show. Um, and I, I know Steve Silberman, the, you know, the, the writer, um, I know he was there and had his mind blown by this one. And so we, we, he and I share an affinity for the show. I was not there. I was nine years old, but, uh, wish I had been. But then Bob does eventually recover and joins Jerry and the rest of the guys on stage. Yeah. It comes out and does a plan and he's singing it's summoning the shakedown. And then actually this is the, this show is also the last time they ever played, uh, if I had the world to give. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of a cool show. 11, 20, it's also my son's birthday, but, you know, whatever it was, uh, 23 years later. Well, it was a good yellow lobster, but a couple people did get it, including uh, Robert and our returning champion from Madrid, Mateo. Uh, let's meet Robert. He is 51 from Portland, Oregon. Robert, nice pull on 78. How did you figure that out? You know, it had a little bit of that late 70s bounce to it. And then uh, his voice sounded about right, but uh, really it was like I was straining to hear what the keyboard was doing, and that made me feel that's like where like Keith is falling off the cliff a little bit in those last couple of tours and not really being particularly creative. Not to dig on them, but, I mean, they talk about that. That's why they left the band. So uh, that's what made me go for it. So. so was he, like, chasing Jerry there? Yeah, and you kind of... Just playing the chords and not really doing the kind of like more delicate feels you get from like the early 70s, you know, especially the 73, 74 stuff where he's just being a jazzy player and like he's just a little bit less inspired or whatever. Cool observation. Mateo, you are our returning champ. You're 35 out of Madrid. Was Keith a clue for you too? Yeah, but I didn't hear Keith until the very end. I was straining. It's like, where, where are the keyboards? Where are the keyboards? Couldn't hear him. And my brain was going early 80s at first, just from the sound of Jerry's voice. And But when finally uh, we waited, like your advice, well, I waited, Mike, to type in the year till the end. And I'm glad I did because I could hear Keith at the end there. Um, so Jerry's voice was another clue. But I got to see this one because any show that starts with jam has jam, playing jam. I got to hear it. Great, Mateo, you're one step closer to defending your title. Nice work. Tucker, guess 1979. He's also on in the next round. Tucker is 32. He's from Chicago. What'd you hear there? It was kind of, you know, hints of Keith and later 70s Keith, because like Robert said, he's a little bit more subdued and kind of just humming along with everyone. But yeah, there was definitely some early on, like, oh, early 80s. No, this is Tiger. This is, you know... But then it's like, ah, the, the tempo's a little 
kind of more poppy and not as not as hot and fast as some of the early 80s stuff so i played it safe between 78 and 80 and split the difference thought you might have been playing the game there with that 79 guess yeah nice work doctor you're on in the next round liz is also on the next round she's 52 and she's from ithaca which means andrew's odd man out we'll get to andrew in a second but uh liz you guessed 1980 nice work uh what'd you hear there why 80 you thought it was brent yeah, I was listening very hard for the keyboards, and my first guess was 77, actually, because it sounds very much like a show from 77 that I have, but then I just wasn't hearing the keys, and at the very end, for a second, I thought I heard Brent's voice. Nice work, Liz. So, Andrew is 31. He's from New York by way of Chicago. Andrew, uh, you guessed 71. Got all tripped up there. What'd you hear? Definitely got a little tripped up there. Um, I felt that Jerry's voice was like almost trying to find it a little bit. And uh, I was listening for Donna. I was listening for Keith, with, which came in at the end. Um, and then a part of me was like, actually, Jerry's voice sounds really old and tired. And I was like, maybe this is like 1990 or something. <laughs> and what was amazing about it was the reason I went with 71 was because the drummers were just so in sync to the point where I thought it was just Billy on the drums. I mean, that's really cool. Props to Mickey and Bill. So, um, yeah, man, happy to be here. Good luck to everybody else. I'm definitely staying on. <laughs> How did you uh, get into the dead, Andrew? The first time that I heard the dead, uh, I was a lot younger. Uh, my father showed them to me along with some of the other jazz that he was listening to. The, the dead were really some of the only rock that he was listening to and that he really ever listens to. He listens to funk sometimes, but usually it's a lot of jazz. Um, but he saw the dead, I think it was in 82 at Stanford. Um, and he used to always like talk about that show. And it wasn't until I got to college. Uh, and you've mentioned this before, Mike, but journalist disclosure, I know Tucker very well. We went to college together. Um, he pulled me into his uh, room once at our fraternity house. And he was like, first of all, we're hanging out. Second of all, we're listening to this music right now. And he completely like reinvigorated me into the band. He um, just, it was the only thing that we were listening to throughout most of our college experience at the University of Iowa. And uh, I started a furniture design company uh, a few years ago after college. And we do a lot of things uh, from the furniture to the art world. And Tucker actually asked if we could create a piece that encapsulated the dead somehow and we ended up creating a piece for him which has since led to a partnership with the band which is crazy yeah man this is just an entire story about how tucker basically helped me uh start listening to the dead again and why they're one of my favorite bands right now and the magic of life has just played on since so you're in partnership with the band was uh what does that mean so we have a technique uh, where we can embed cross cuts of wood in resin. Um, and when you think of a cross cut of wood, it could be from a branch. It could be several inches or millimeters. And uh, we can stylistically place them. So the piece that Tucker commissioned specifically um, was the Steely logo, basically made out of wood, where there were little circles that were stenciled. And it was real pieces of wood embedded in resin. And once we commissioned a few more of those after someone had seen them on social media, one of my friends reached out to me who 
had known someone who had worked with them and Warner Brothers and they were like, do you want me to put you in touch with them? Maybe they'll like your work. And um, one thing led to another and it's where we are today, which is very cool. So uh, we're going to be able to officially represent the Grateful Dead through our work and through our art, which we're really excited about the first furniture design company that they've ever worked with. So it's going to be cool. The first furniture design company ever? Wow. That's what I was told. So I don't know. I, uh, I'm just grateful for it. And um, more importantly than that, I'm just like, I'm excited to be here. So uh, without them, like none of this would be possible. And to me, it's just really like fucking amazing how a band like the Grateful Dead has created a tradition, like a tradition. Like how many authentic traditions do we have in this country? to where we are now all on Zoom and there are literally multiple generations of people talking about and celebrating something that is more than music and art and community. It is all of it together. And that is one of the greatest American traditions. Very cool. And it's part of your and Nick's occupation even. You know, it's, it's a hobby, it's a passion, and it's part of your livelihood. Yeah. Um, at this point, I guess I get to say that it is going to be even more than it has been so we'll see where it goes uh it's launching soon um but we're excited about it so yeah where can people find that uh we'll be able to sell the work on abdbdesigns.com that's the name of my company uh and then we also have a showroom that's going to be representing uh the work out in the hamptons west out east uh and it's going to start with the wall hangings that have been commissioned but if somebody wants something custom uh, we make to order. We have a lot of skilled makers. We make everything in New Jersey. And uh, yeah, we've been doing it for a long time. So uh, it's something special. Nick, how did it feel for you? First of all, how'd you get into the dead? But also, how did it feel for you to go through it? Andrew did where, you know, you're a lifelong deadhead and then all of a sudden it becomes part of your occupation. Uh, well, I, I felt like, uh, I guess this this mainly started when I wrote a long piece for the New Yorker um what was it i can't even remember the year 2012 uh yeah so 11 years ago uh i've been thinking about it for a while i've been listening to the archive it had sort of revived my interest in music and deepened my understanding and knowledge of the of the you know the immense body of work and i had gone to see you know dark star orchestra a couple times i'm thinking that this is like this is a thing that's going to hang around this has really worked its way into the root system of of American culture, American musical culture, you know, becoming multi-generational. It was like, it was almost like a, a genre, you know, uh, it was like bebop or something or, or Beethoven, like it was going to be played in repertory, you know, and, uh, um, and my obsession with the, the taped record just deepened, you know, I just, I just kept listening all, you know, just listening and listening and learning more and more and just not getting sick of Jerry or any of it, it just becomes more and more interesting the further you got into it, which is not usually what things are like, <laughs> in, unless you get obsessed with something. So anyway, I, I so I, I persuade the New Yorker editors to let me write this piece, um, and uh, I wrote a very long piece that was cut down from like you know eighteen or nineteen thousand words down to like twelve thousand words. So the New Yorker magazine ran twelve thousand words about the Grateful Dead under the headline "Deadhead" with you know, my name under it, which was just kind of a trip. I, I felt like I was coming out, you know, because I'd been trying to come off as cool. And here I was like, yeah, I'm a Grateful Dead dork. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, 
Yeah, but like in, in the course of reporting it, obviously, you know, I spent time with Lemieux. I went to the vault. I, I got to spend an afternoon with Betty. I spent some time with Phil, you know, on the, the day that Levon Helm died. I was with him when he got the call. You know, so it was like suddenly it was way closer to the flame, you know, than I had been like, you know, I was just a teenage prep school idiot who had gone to like hockey arenas to see them play and had stood outside and tried to get into these shows and collected tapes like everybody else. And suddenly I was, you know, a lot closer to the actual thing. And that was, that was pretty cool. Um, but, you know, as a journalist, you don't want to get co-opted or be too close to anything. And actually I have a good friend who said after that piece came out, he's like, now you should never write anything more about the band ever again. Like, that's it. You've done it. Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's the right thing to do. That's totally the right thing to do. And then like, I keep getting sucked into stuff like this <laughs> <laughs> because I love it. You know, I just, I, I love it. And this, this is the parlor game that I play at home. And, uh, I love, I, you know, I've listened to a bunch of these things and I, you know, this, this way of going about it is, is fun too. The guest of the year, the, the, that particular, like, it's like fine wines, you know, you get to really get the nose for the tannins, you know, and, uh, um, so I like hearing everyone talk about like the keyboards that you've had guys on before on the show, like talking about tuning of the cymbals or there was that one guy who was on who won a bunch. He was talking about how Jerry got fat and his fatter fingers led to a different tone. I'd never heard that. I've been listening and thinking about fat Jerry forever and loved <laughs> that, that tone. And I was like, is that what it is? You know? And it's so, um, that's, I'm not answering your question. I'm just rambling, but I, you know, it's, um, this is an endeavor that's drawn me back in and it's, it's fun to be a part of this and be close to your, the business of carving wood pieces. And here we go. Love it. That was Todd. Um, the great Todd. Yeah. yeah. Todd. So when you were in the grateful dead vault for this piece, was it a hard to balance your reverence for the dead and need to comport yourself like a journalist? I don't know. I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I just kind of, my journalistic mode is to be myself. So I'm there poking around. Um, you know, I, I'm a fan, obviously, but, you know, I, I, I can keep cool around the tapes. You know? <laughs> Pretend to be cool. Uh, you know, actually, it was really being in the vault. This is a little aside. Um, it was in this giant Warner Brothers vault. And there was this other section where they had huge uh, shelves full of tapes of uh Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, stuff that had never been heard, never released. And in some ways, as much of a deadhead as I am, like I'd heard most of the stuff in the vault, in the deadhead vault, because it's all been released, it's all circulated. But I was seeing that other stuff, like those, you know, those artists don't have the same culture that we have. And so, you know, there's Otis Redding stuff, there's Aretha Franklin stuff, she's recorded, he's recorded. It's never been heard and may never be heard because there's just not a culture of releasing it or circulating it. And that was the stuff that really got me drooling and act, had me acting less professionally. And they got upset when I put that in the story and I kind of had to take some of the things out because I was going to get people fired. So. Oh, shit. Well, Andrew, that's incredible what you're doing and how you uh, incorporated the dead into it. And Tucker, thank you for commissioning Andrew to, to do that. <laughs> nice work. Easiest thing. Um. Yeah, Andrew, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's such a fun show. It's something that's so pure and so authentic, and everybody is having so much fun. At least that's what I've heard on 
every other episode and it's no different on this one so good luck you guys uh it's nice to meet you all and uh i'm excited to see who wins thanks andrew yeah thanks andrew and that's very kind of you and i feel the same way just a bunch of deadheads hanging out you know fun will ensue i'll put the uh, abdb design link in the instagram uh story on the launch day here so everyone can access it appreciate you man that's awesome of course um all right Robert, Tucker, Mateo, and Liz are on in the next round, and Nick's got another killer song for them. Let's hear it. I know you guesses are in it was i know you rider at meadowlands arena in east rutherford new jersey on november 10th 1985 nice picnic talk a little about that one well yeah i have to say up front it's it's really you know nothing i pick is necessarily a favorite or the best ever anything it's, i guess i'm picking some of these things for personal reasons and this is one i, I was at this show i was 16 years old i uh, didn't have tickets didn't get tickets. Uh, this was my one and only uh, experience as a gate crasher, the cursed gate crasher. I did not initiate this this act of, of violence uh, or mayhem, but being 16 and being ticketless and being in a parking lot in New Jersey, um, I rode the wave and wound up joining a flow of people crashing in this this place where the where the dreaded the dreaded security at at uh, Brendan Byrne, they're infamous, and they wound up killing someone a few years later. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the karma of that was that later that night, I came down with a vicious case of chicken pox and got mugged um, at gunpoint in uh, <clears throat> right outside of Port Authority. But in between the gate crash and the, the end of the night, which was horrible, I went to one of my favorite Grateful Dead shows ever, and it's uh, you know it's in that sort of much maligned mid late eight you know mid early mid eighties era you know um, which happens to be one of my favorites partly because that's when I was introduced to it, also for reasons that I could bore anybody with here for you know hours, but uh, um, it was just a, a, one of those shows where Jerry was a boss you know he was he was he was in wearing he was wearing red trouble in red um, he was big I think he cleaned up a little bit 
for 85, late 85. It was like, that was a great tour fall 85. Uh, this is the second set and uh, it, they opened, it was a half step rider. I don't think they ever did that again. So this is a, I know you rider out of a half step, which was, which was bizarre. Um, and so I thought, you know, it'd be fun for you guys to, to hear something, you know, the, a rider that's disembodied in an era when it almost always would have come out of China Cat. And, um, you know, it takes a while as, as a lot of those 80s things do to warm up. But I think that, you know, the second verse and then the, the solo, he to me, it sounds like he, he's, he's playing in paragraphs. And there are elements in there that, that to me say 1985. Um, so I'm happy to share that. So there you go. It was also the night, speaking of bad vibes, it was also the night that uh, my favorite hockey team's goalie, the star goalie, Pelly Lindbergh, killed himself, drove, drove into a, an overpass in his Porsche and was killed. Um, so there was like bad vibes in the air. And yet the dead did something that night inside the building that was special and stays with me always. So. Sorry to lay that on you, but, you know, the light and dark is part of the deal, you know, that's the whole thing. When life looks like easy street, there's danger at your door. Exactly. Which they played that night. There you go. It felt right. I actually had like, a, I was running a fever. I felt like hell. You know, we took, um, there was some blotter and leopard skins. This was the pattern. Um, took the leopard skins and then got home at like four in the morning or three in the morning. Looked in the mirror and I was like spotted like a leopard. <laughs> Nick, for a journalist there, you buried the lead. Uh, so the th yeah, while you were getting yeah, mugged, yeah. you were on leopard. <laughs> getting mugged, getting, getting mugged. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it was a hell of a night. Uh, and, and a shout out to my my partner. My partner that night was a, a good friend. Uh, we 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 played Tweedledum and Tweedledee in the fifth grade play. And uh, I'd like to do a shout out to Tweedledee, who's you know been hitting some hard times. But uh, here's here's the Tweedledee. Yeah, a lot of voodoo in the air that night. I'll just uh, you know so. Sounds very mid-80s New York from the movies. Yeah. <laughs> that shit doesn't happen anymore, it seems. It's my... <laughs> cool, Nick. Thank you. Okay, so Tucker and Mateo were both closest. They both guessed 1982, and they are both on in the next round. Tucker, uh, what'd you hear there? Why 82? So definitely Tiger, and it's running hot. The Mac, there's a certain... And when, when Nick said 85... It was like, oh, spot on. 85, I think, has like his rig and Tiger. There's something where it's just so tight and so hot. And I was getting a little bit of that, but not the strain of his voice that you usually associate with 85. Um, so I was like, ah, you know, it's in there. And so for whatever reason, 82 felt right. But then when you guys said 85, and then, of course, the red T-shirt, that's, you know, classic Jerry 85. Um, yeah, it makes sense. I just, his his voice sounded surprisingly, you know, younger and a little bit more kind of upbeat than a typical 85. Um, thanks, Tucker. You're on the next round. Mateo, uh, were you thinking the same thing about Jerry's voice at all? I was, yeah. It sounded like um, he was a couple... I don't know, thousand cigarettes less than he would have been in, in 1985. So um, I heard that, but I also heard Brent and Brent was singing in his gruff way that he usually does in later years. And so that, that threw me up. I had a, a later year typed and then they started jamming and the jam was 
It was sick. It was really good, a really good clip, Nick. Uh, I was feeling it, uh, and it just sounded like an earlier jam. So Jerry's voice, uh, sick jamming. I had to go with 82. There's nothing else I could do. Very, very reasonable. So Liz is also on in the next round. She guessed 1979 because Robert guessed 1993. So Liz, nice work. You're wow. on the next round. Yeah, so why did you think 79? Um, it was Brent's keys. As soon as I typed it in and hit send, I was like, wait, were they even doing I Know You Writer in 79? And I felt like I was definitely going to be eliminated. So that's kind of a trip. Um, good choice, Nick. I, I was just mainly going by Brent's keys. I don't know any of the other technical stuff. I can't tell what guitar Jerry's playing or like how fat his fingers are or anything like that. <laughs> I just, you know, pretty much try to hone in on the on who's on keys. And then what era that sounds like to me, you know, based on who's who's on keys. Nice work, Liz. You're on to the next round. Robert, 93, talk to us. Yeah, you know, um, I feel like different toys have different sounds. And there was something I was hearing in it that reminded me a lot of what you get in late 93. Like Jerry's a little bit reinvigorated. Um, Jerry sounded old to me. And that's what made me think of that. I mean, when you said 85, I was like, oh, God, I love 85. I should have totally gotten that, but or at least closer than that. But I think, you know, I just got stuck in, like, it really reminded me that a China writer from, like, the December 93 tour that just had this incredible energy and Jerry just flying all over everything. And that just got in my head, and I couldn't get past it and hear the details well enough to get out of that previous, you know, the first guest kind of thing, I guess. Well, Robert, how did you get into the dead? Um, well, I had an older half-brother, 15 years older than me in New York. Uh, he like was old enough to have seen like Hendrix open for the Monkees on one of those rare shows. And, um, and he had uh, lots of albums, and I taped American Beauty and Blues for Allah, and I think I stole his Working Men Dead cassette. And, you know, the problem is those are all great albums, and so you don't realize that the dead thing is the live thing. And then I went in college and somebody's like, hey, the dead are coming to town. You want to take it? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. And I called my brother up and he's like, well, don't expect them to play the hit songs, you know. So so then I went to the show and it was a classic case of a mind blown. I mean, I spent the whole show probably 30 or 40 feet in front of Jerry because it was a rich stadium in Buffalo. And it was uh, every seat of general admission. So you walk in the stadium and you go wherever the heck you want. And uh, Steve Miller Band was opening. Um, but man, it was just so mind-blowing all the way through. They played Friend of the Devil slow. I was like, oh, cool, they do it slow. I didn't know they'd been doing that for 15 years. Uh, but then, you know, after that, I started tape trading, especially after Jerry died. You know, I went to a few shows, and then Jerry died. And so tape trading was kind of the way you could keep the magic alive in the late 90s when there weren't actually shows to go to. And I probably have like a thousand cassette tapes in the basement of my house that I don't even open because, you know, we listen and uh, the online archive is way better quality than most of my cassettes anyway. But but you're still not giving up those tapes. No, especially because I used to do this thing of like, um, I would listen to them get stoned and I would like make collage art and stuff on the cover. So a lot of them have like custom art cases and stuff like that. So, you know, 
I own my house. I can sit there in the basement until God knows whatever happens. But <laughs> hell yeah, Robert. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on, Robert. Thanks for having me, and I can't believe I got through at least one round. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all. Liz, Tucker, and Mateo are on to the next round, fighting for two spots in the best of three series, all trying to vie for that 492 vintage prize pack provided by our good pal Barry, former contestant on Guest of the Year. Nick's got another uh, killer song. Let's hear it. guesses are in it was playing in the band at fox theater in atlanta georgia on november 30th 1980 nick you requested that portion of the jam specifically talk to us well uh so that's that's the the it's called the fox to, to those of us who love it and uh, it was sort of the it was a, one of the first tapes i had and was we had sort of a schoolboy cult around it that has achieved some renown that I've written about um, and became a Dave's picks. And I wrote the, the uh, liner notes for that. Um, and then every year when, when Lemieux honors it on that day, November 30th, he, uh, he often gives me a shout out, which is an incredible thing. Um, but anyway, that, so that's a, that's a, uh, a tape made by Dr. Bob Wagner, who was a, who was a taper um, and, a, and a doctor. And uh, it's, it's by his reckoning, the best live tape he ever made. He made it from the, the balcony at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. And um, that second set is sort of famous in small circles, uh, probably most of all for a scarlet fire that begins the second set, which is Titanic, um, which to me sounds like a composed piece of music. Uh, but the plan, the plan jam is, is a personal favorite of mine. It's like this headlong, kind of aggressive piece of music um better than a lot of sort of post hiatus you know meaning post 75 playing in the bands it's not drifty it's kind of aggressive and jangly you know uh so why does it sound like that year i mean like it's it's probably hard to specify that era 
you know, between an 80 or an 82, I know, but there's something about the heavy sound, the heavy tone of Garcia's guitar, um, the way that Brent is hitting the keys, um, and just the sound of that theater. I, I just I just love it. I, I urge you all, if you, if you don't know that one, 113080, the Dr. Bob Wagner audience tape, um, or just listen to Dave's picks, which is a, which is a, they made a matrix out of it. Um, and uh, the rule was that when we were kids or high school kids, the rule was it was a, there were the four commandments was, and uh, you, thou shalt not press play, uh, stop, pause, fast forward or rewind during the scarlet fire and transition. And there were rules about having to fire up a, a bowl every time you listen to it, you know, all this stuff written in like uh, elaborate, you know, calligraphy on a poster board. Um, it's ridiculous. And yet I still like I hear that every time I hear it. It just blows my mind. But anyway. So for Dr. Bob Wagner, was he a taper who was known in his time? Or was that something where afterwards everyone's like, those Bob Wagner tapes are pretty good? Uh, he was, you know, he wasn't one of the original wave. He, he started taping in 1977. He was a he was a student down at a, he was a medical student. I think it, I think it was at uh, in Chapel Hill. And he uh, he went to a show and then he heard it on the radio and he thought that was cool uh from that i think it was that spring 77 stuff um and he wanted to learn how to do it and he sort of went to went to school on how to do it and you know that that particular mini tour in november december of 1980 is special all around they went they did a after they did their whole uh you know warfield thing which became dead and and then radio city thing they went on this little mini tour of the Southeast and they went down to Florida. It was that's the winter where the oranges froze. Then they went to, um, they went to Georgia and I have this theory because they just go down there, they're done recording and making those two albums in a very sort of staid circumstance. And they go down there and I have this theory. It's like the same time that, uh, that Scarface came out, you know, and I have this theory they went down to the Southeast and just like, they they stumbled into like a, a major snowstorm of, <laughs> of a quality that they hadn't that they maybe had seen and they were just because that the music that they made in that week and a half down there is is, is kind of unusually vibrant. You know, they they always have these little mini periods where they just suddenly catch fire, you know, where they'll go on a run of like three out of four nights or four out of six nights where they're just it's just incredible. And that's one of those. So thanks, Dick. Well, Matteo, our returning champ, was closest in 1981, and he is on to the finals. Matteo, as the clock reaches 4 o'clock, <laughs> what uh, did you hear there? One year off. Really impressive. Um, that was throwing me for a big... Nick, your, your picks are awesome. Uh, as, as soon as Mike starts to fade the, the song out, I'm like, no, I'm just, I'm grooving. I like this. So I, I might have to get a list of your favorite shows, Nick. Your yellow lobsters. Um, well, I don't know. It was throwing me for a loop. I couldn't tell. It was just a jam. We didn't really get too many too many clues. It was clearly the rhythm devils back there behind the drums. Clearly Brent. Um, I heard Jerry playing really fast, really fast licks. And usually, I think of that as being like really late seventies or early eighties. I know he always he always played fast. He was awesome at the guitar, but. It sounded earlier 80s to me. Um, did I mention the wah? I heard his wah a little bit, and that reminded me, too, of, of late 70s stuff. So 
I put 81 to be closer to the late 70s, but also not, I don't know, not too far away from late 80s. <laughs> nice play. Way to go, Mateo. So Liz guessed 82 and Tucker guessed 84. So Liz is on to the finals. Liz, only two years off there. Why 82? Um, I knew it was early 80s. And so I was just kind of, you know, like I said earlier, it's really hard for me to tell between 79 and 82. And then I'm always like, could it be 83? You know, and and it took me a minute to figure out what song it was, you know, just the jam threw me. And so I, I got a little tripped up thinking about that too. But, um, you know, so far I've guessed 1980, 1979, I guess I just wanted to throw out a different year. <laughs> kind of put it in the middle of what I thought it was. Sure, sure, of course. Well, congrats, you're on to the finals. Tucker, 84, uh, why 84? It was definitely early 80s. Like Mateo was saying, like, I I didn't know, you know, it was (laughs) right in that pocket, but it's like, it could be 80 to 84. And um, it seemed a little bit more advanced than 80 to me. Like, this is something where it's like, huh, it's not necessarily typical for, you know, I think of Radio City, which was, what, a month before. And Jerry seemed to be somewhat, I don't know, a little bit more just advanced with those runs. And and I was like, oh, is he going to trip us up with one off from 85 for the next one? You know, and so it was between 83 and 84, and I, you know went for 84 totally reasonable um well how did you get in the dead and how did you get to the point where you're pulling buddies into your uh your dorm room and telling them they have to listen to the dead oh everyone you know and uh (laughs) it's i i'm i i change everyone or at least try but um my first memory is sometime in high school having some cd with probably the turn on your love light from live dead, you know, some, and so it's like, what's, what is this, you know? And the breakdown where it's like, you know, she's got box back, you know, great, big and noble thought, you know, it's just like all this stuff. Um, and then it just catapulted from there. Uh, I play guitar and piano pretty much self-taught so I can hear something and, you know, figure it out and grateful dead music has been it for me ever since then so it's all i play and all i listen to obviously some jgb here and there just to you know even it out um but it's just the most amazing music you know we all know that and for whatever reason it could be someone could have a totally different you know, way of enjoying it, but we all come to the same, same place in the end, and uh, you can't beat it. And tell us about the piece you uh, commissioned uh, your buddy Andrew to make for you. Um. Well, I knew I wanted something from him, and it wasn't a big surprise that most likely that was going to be Grateful Dead centric. So it was just, you know, hey, what design do I want? And the steely worked perfect with the bolt, you know, and there's hundreds of pieces of, of wood. I mean, it's incredible, this art. Um, and each, you know, wood piece has a, has an, a grain that's special. And, you know, the, the, the detail that, that 
Andrew and his his partner go into to make this stuff is just incredible. So it turned out just absolutely amazing. And I mean, it's just mind blowing how it's now turned into working with the dead and Rhino and Dave and, you know, putting it out there for probably so many people to be like, Oh yeah, I want one of those for my wall or I want a table of this stuff or so. Yeah. I mean, it's just grateful dead, everything in my life. So that made sense to have a grateful dead styled piece. Right on Tucker. Thanks for coming on and thanks. No, thank you so much for having me. It's great to meet everyone. And Nick, thank you so much for these shows. They're absolute spot on. So (laughs) I'm I'm having fun sharing them. Yeah, absolutely. Do this all week. All right. Liz and Mateo are on to the finals, a best of three series um, to win the 492 vintage prize pack. Let's hear the first song in the finals. Right, the guesses are in sitting on top of the world the first sitting on top of the world and guess the year's illustrious history at auditorium theater in chicago on october 21st 1971 why sitting on top of the world and why that one in particular uh i've always loved that 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 comes out of a dark star uh first of all which is you know it comes headlong out of a dark star which is a lot of fun uh it's a it's a it's one of the original grateful dead cover songs i mean they were they were playing that from the very beginning um and it kind of pops up here and there but it's not a mainstay um what i love about that one is it's 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 uh keith it's keith gotcha's second show and it, that's from that tour in the fall of 71 and when they brought him on um he'd, he'd studied up he'd listened to the houseboat tapes and uh, he joined the band and that, that was the second show and he, he's going nuts and he's, he kind of leads, he's, he's the most, in some ways, the most prominent member of the band as they go from 
the dark star into uh, in, into sit on top of the world. Um, so I, in terms of like choose the year, I chose it because it's it's very you know it's it's early proto Keith, and um, I think that that whole tour like you know before Christmas in '71, before he really got more polished and um, really settled in a bit, you know they, they had the Academy of New York shows and then they went to Europe and he really became this, you know, this jazz piano player in the band. But early on, he had this barrel house, just pounding style. He just went, you know, kind of threw himself into the songs. And I, and I love that, that era. Again, it's like sometimes when they're morphing from one era to another, um, it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. They're reinventing themselves. And this was like this, the, their seventh reinvention, even within the course of seven, six, seven years. Um, so I, you know, I, I just, I just love it. It's fun, and I just, I just, I love Garcia's singing energy. It's sassy. I love, I love, I love Garcia when he when he, he's sassy. And I thought I'd throw in throwing up a bit, a bit of a wrench. Um, so, how'd you guys do? You wrenched me, Nick, big time. <laughs> you wrenched me too because I forgot to implement a new format. Well, next song, you definitely wrenched Mateo, and uh, it's only slightly turned Liz. Liz gets nineteen sixty eight. She gets the point. She's goes up one zero in the series because. Mateo guessed 84. So, Liz, we'll go to you first. You had the right idea. Slightly different lineup, but right there in years. Uh, why 68? I knew it was one of their earliest songs that they, that they did. I've heard it on like a 66 show, I'm pretty sure. And I didn't know when they stopped doing it. Um, so I really associated it with the 60s. And then I tried listening for two drummers, and I tried listening to see if Keith was on keys. I didn't hear him. I was a little tripped up by that, but I just knew it was early. Um, so I thought I'd put it. I was I was leaning towards 67 to 69. So I just went in the middle. Early song. Makes sense. You'll go up one zero in the series. Mateo, 84. What'd you hear there? I want to use the excuse that it's it's late here. Hey, but no, uh, I it, I did just poorly. I, I was picturing Brent on the keys. Those keys were going wild. And I was just, I was just picturing, yeah, it was just going crazy on the keys. And I thought that does not sound like Keith. Nick? I love Keith before the hiatus. Um, love him, you know, Europe and then the, so that Fender Road stuff in 74. I love it. And then on and on and then in, and even 76 he's got that kind of gospel big piano sound and the, the singing is nice and um but some, something you know i actually think less of a lot of the spring 77 stuff relative to most deadheads um because of Keith's contributions aren't you know i i think the keyboards were always a really important part of the dead um i love brent i love keith when he was hot i love i love you know Tom Constantine, I love Pig when he was. I just I like keys, um, and I, and I liked it when 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 Bruce was with the band. Um, Vince, I don't know, but um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it's a, the keys. Obviously, are one of the are one of the keys that I I think when we're doing guess the year, it's it's one of the it's one of the big tells, right? Um, and and that was almost uncharacteristic of Keith in that one because he's just so aggressive, but. You know, it does sound like a piano. That's one thing, like a real piano. Um, and he, that's what he sounded like that that fall. It was almost like he was in a bar. You know, you imagine him almost with like one of those one of those arm garters and a you know like a 
Yeah, the honky tonk. <laughs> um, do you feel like Keith's decline, while certainly not like precipitous, was linear, or were there moments in the late seventies where he, you know, recaptured the magic of the early seventies? Uh, there are great moments throughout. Always, I mean, every every one of the guys, you know, Garcia did this too. Where just when you thought it was no good anymore, he blow your mind. And uh, no, there's a uh, there's uh, there's stuff in '78 that I love of his, and '79. There's some almost disco-y stuff that he's doing, and um, but generally he was way more interesting. I think uh, he did beautiful stuff with the Jerry Garcia band too in '76, '77, and. Uh, but just uh, that 71 to 74 period, love it. Who doesn't? Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Liz, before we go on, can you tell us how you got into the dead? Um, so I always loved music, like really loved it from the time I was a very little kid. Used to make up like dances and, and stuff to all kinds of music. And when I was in high school in the 80s, I started getting into all the music from Woodstock because I watched the documentary and I was like, felt pretty certain that I'd been born in the wrong generation. And so I had, I was buying all these records like Cream and Traffic and Jimi Hendrix and Janice and um, I had a little party one night when my parents were out of town and a friend of mine was looking at my tapes and said, you should go to a Grateful Dead show. And I was like, they're still playing? I had no idea. I, I only knew a couple songs that had been on the radio, like Truckin' and Casey Jones. So um, they were coming to, I, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. So, you know, yay, Chicago. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was like winter 1988. I was 17 and a senior in high school. And um, we got tickets to go see them at Rosemont Horizon in april so so i dragged a few friends with me um before i went i bought the record american beauty it was like my only you know connection to their music i had no idea i knew that they like improvised i knew each show was different but i did not know what to expect when i walked onto that <laughs> lot and i was just blown away i mean you know the the people the buses the art the clothes the culture the food it was just so amazing to me and I felt like I'd found my people and then we went into the show and they opened the show first set with a scarlet fire which I had no idea what was happening you know I just was like what is this um and everyone's dancing I, I was I spent the whole show just kind of running around um joining the spinners I mean, it just, it felt, it was such a great feeling. We had the best time. And then, um, and then like after that, you just see deadheads everywhere, right? Because all of a sudden you're like aware that this group of people exists and you kind of know what the Birkenstocks mean and what the tie-dyes mean and um, met some deadheads in my last couple months of high school. And we, um, we made it plan to go to Alpine 88 so I went up there spent a week up at Alpine Valley and then after that I met this group of older deadheads that were like in their late 20s early 30s and they kind of took me under their wing and I ended up you know doing a bunch of tours with them like all of summer 89 all of summer 90 um yeah it was 
was really a great time. <laughs> it's just an amazing experience. Yeah. Those were some really good years, I feel like. I mean, after that, the 90s weren't as exciting. They, it was still fun, but both for the band and for me personally, it was kind of like a difficult period, but it was still amazing. Yeah. So you kept on touring a little bit in the 90s? Yeah, I had a daughter in 91. Um and I took her to shows with me. She actually saw 44 Grateful Dead shows and one Jerry Garcia band show by the time she was four and Jerry died. Yeah. And then did you continue seeing, you know, the progeny of these, uh, of the, you know, further and the dead and all that stuff? You know, honestly, I only saw a couple. So in 94, I moved my, my three-year-old daughter to California from Chicago, we decided to move to Humboldt County. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, and on the way out there, we had all these like mishaps, my car broke down, I ended up staying in Denver for a week, you know, things just like, got crazy. And then we got back on the road, and we happened to be passing Reno, Nevada, and it's like 6pm. And I say, I think Jerry's playing tonight. And my kid in the back seat, she's three, she goes, Garcia? And I'm like, I, I think so. I'm not sure. And so she starts flipping out. She's like, I want to see Jerry. Let's go see Jerry. Can, can we see Jerry? Is Jerry playing? And I was like, oh my God, I have to find a Jerry Garcia band show or my three-year-old's going to have a tantrum. So I'm driving around Reno, Nevada. I've never been there before in my life. And I was just about to give up when I see this bus pull into a gas station and I'm like, hey, is Jerry Garcia band playing tonight? And they're like, yeah, follow us. And so it was, he was playing in the Reno Hilton parking lot. It was like 20 bucks. We went in. You could walk right up to the stage. I mean, it was amazing. After all these like stadium shows, that was September 94. And then when Jerry died, I just was like, I was really too sad to kind of keep going with the other bands. Um, I went. I, I went to grad school, I got married, I had two more kids, and then we moved to Ithaca in uh, 2000. So, but yeah, for a really long time, it made me sad. And then um, when they announced the Fear Thee Well shows in Chicago, I was like, well, I got to go to those because that's my, I saw every Chicago show from 88 through 94. I didn't go back for the 95 shows, um, but I had to go to Fear Thee Well. It was going to be my chance to say goodbye and then you know when they announced dead and company i started taking my kids to see dead and company shows and they're all pretty much on the bus i mean they they like it like my oldest daughter that saw all these grateful dead shows with jerry she likes the music but she couldn't name like one song <laughs> I mean, it's just you know she just didn't get in like that but um but i think she and I are going to go to SPAC this summer and have like a nice little, like just the two of us. It's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's like the old days. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, she's 31 years old now. So at her first dead and company show, I said to her, do you, does any, any, any of this familiar? And she said the smell. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Liz, thank you for sharing all that. And you're up 1-0 in the series. Nick's got a song. Let's play it.
Nick. <laughs> I don't know how anyone keeps listening to the podcast after that. That's like that's a clear like press pause and track that one down. Okay, um, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to remember to do the our fancy new thing here. So the guesses are in. We're going to hear what uh, Mateo and Liz thought before we reveal the answer. So Liz, we'll go back to you. The answer you submitted is 1987. Why do you think 87? Honestly, I have no idea. It was somewhere <laughs> in the 80s. Um, I don't even know what song it was. <laughs> oh, I should have said it. It was uh, Blues for Allah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, shoot, then. That was probably way earlier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Mateo guessed way earlier. He guessed 78. Why 78, Mateo? Nick, you're you're making you're not making it easy, Nick. Uh, but that's that's cool. It's fun. Um, I don't know either. I couldn't really tell who was on the keys. Um, sounded to me like Keith, but it was kind of just repeating the same the same riff um, on a on a piano. Uh, Garcia's tone was was really metal. He had a, a lot of drive going on it, and. I, I wanted to get closer to the 80s with Garcia's drive, but I wanted to stay closer to the 70s with what I thought was Keith. So I went with 78. Well, it was Keith. It was Blues for Allah at Kizar Stadium in San Francisco uh, on March 23rd, 1975. So you even up the series, Mateo. <laughs> and Nick, why, why'd you choose that song? Well, it was either that or like a baby, you know how I'm feeling from like 1983. Uh, no. I mean, that's a little nerdy of me. I'm sorry. Uh, but I guess I chose it. Well, 1975 is such a weird year. There's not much in it. You know, there's basically like three shows, I think. And one of them is the, one of the most famous ones, one of the best ones they ever played, Great American Music Hall, which we probably know just from the sound of it. But they played a couple other weird one-offs, um, one at Kizar, one, at, one out in Golden Gate Park. And um, they were sort of retired but they were meanwhile woodshedding stuff up in Marin County, up at Bobby's house and doing these like weird prog jams and um, developing all this sort of more like fusion ideas. And one of them was what would become the album Blues for Allah. And this was, they only played it twice, I think. Um, and I mean, it's a pretty goofy prog song, but I will say that, so that's the part, portion of the song when they come out of whatever it is, like King Solomon's Marbles, you know, Milking the Turkey, one of those jazz jams and they come out of it into the reprise. And I, I, I don't know. It's, it's like, it's something that they did twice maybe. And it's just gorgeous. It's like church music to me. Um, Garcia's ripping it. The thing, the thing that makes it 75 to me is number one on this one. There are actually allegedly, I'm not sure on this exact portion, but at the show, there were three keyboardists. They're all on stage. You had Merle Saunders, Ned Lagan, and and Keith. Um, and that after this, they play a Johnny Be Good. It's just like with three keyboardists hammering away, and it's it's, it's insane. Um, you were right, Mateo, with the metallic aggressive sound, but that is, I think, the you know the aluminum neck, you know, of the Travis Beam guitar. Uh, which he took up that year. But it, for all I know, he wasn't playing it at that show. You know, maybe, he, you know, uh, but I think that's what he was playing there. Um, anyway, yeah, some some arcana, some nerd Incredible. arcana. Incredible. 
but 75 okay, so great year more and more <laughs> difficult but yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean how many big rivers can can we put on this show before <laughs> move on go deep why do you think blues for all specifically had such a short lifespan i i mean i assume like a lot of the songs that were sort of difficult had a lot of parts that were weird to sing they just didn't rehearse them and they gave up on them you know um they never i don't think they ever played the the entire terrapin suite they were going to play it you had you had the that english towns uh show on the other day um and uh they played terrapin as the encore where they were supposed to play the whole thing but mickey who had one arm because he'd been in that car accident like just wasn't up to it he was just and they needed the, the two so I think they wrote stuff in there. The same reason they abandoned St. Stephen because that middle part was kind of laborious. Um, but that that lick or that that return to it is so great. I kind of wish that they'd use that as like a coda to something else, like to end shows. They could have done that through the '80s. I mean, why not? It's just it's a ripping coda, you know. Um, uh, but you know, one of the funny things about the Dead is they're considered to be this like nostalgia band, and they were always, you know, they everyone thinks of them as playing the same thing but every year this show being proof of it they were different i mean they just every year was different they, they actually did move on and drop things i mean later on in the 80s and the 90s they got a little stayed a little stuck in the rut but um you know from like 1966 to 1982 like every year was just really and even 85 just really different and um 75 is a weird one yeah, Jerry seems almost averse to nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the only reason he kept performing things, I think mean, he just got lazy and, and uh, complacent. It wasn't because he, he was like, ah, I want to, you know, I want to play Big River the same way again, as much as I love Big River, not knocking Big River. <laughs> you know, I think it's just like, yeah, this is when you do our cowboy song, you know? And I think when uh, when Bruce came to the band, he's like, why don't we mix things up? And they're like, no, this is the way we do things. It's like, they got, they got a little stuck in their rut. It was just laziness. It wasn't because they're like, this, we need to do it the old way. But it seems like you're into the Bruce years. Do you think Bruce injected some life for those years? Yeah, that was, you know, the dead cat bounce. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Mateo tied it up, back against the wall, fights his way out, ties up the series 1-1. And uh, if you thought it was going to get way easier, you'd be wrong.
So, it was hard to handle. Mateo, you guessed 1970. Why 70? Well, it sounded to me a lot like uh, a show that I like from August of... Now I'm starting to doubt myself. I don't know if it's the time or just my brain, but <laughs> I thought maybe it's 71 now that I'm thinking about it. But August 6th, either 70 or 71, it's a fantastic hard to handle. When I'm listening to this show, uh, I'm walking around thinking, what songs would I curate? Um, and that that one would definitely be in there. But now I'm getting nervous that it was 71 and not 70. Uh, Liz was thinking the opposite direction. Liz, you guessed 67. Why 67? Uh, it just sounded a little rough to me, um, a little early. I think the, uh, the hard to handles that I'm familiar with from like 70 or 69 are maybe it's just the recording itself, but they see, they sound a little more put together. So that was my guess. I was just leaning earlier. Okay. Well, it was hard to handle at International Speedway in Hollywood, Florida on December 28th, 1969. So Mateo is the back-to-back champ. Nice work, Mateo. Liz, great run yourself. Uh, But Nick, how did you uh, arrive at that specific hard to handle? That's another old favorite tape. Uh, It was actually mislabeled when I was was younger. I think it it was, um, it said Miami Pop 68. It sort of took me a while to figure out years ago what it was. you know, guessing 70, it, it sounds like 1970. It has that wild and woolly sound of 1970. Um, but it is, like Liz says, it's like it's sort of unformed. It's sort of a, it's a newer one. Um, it's outside. It's, it's sort of a, it's a show they, they played. There's great uh, patter from the stage, that show. They're, they're telling people that they can come up to the stage, that they can't come up to the stage. There's people climbing on the wires, them towers. You know, and they they say, I, you know, it's like I don't see any cops around. You know, it's a whole thing, and it's it it has that sort of feral energy. Uh, that it's actually I think it's the same month as uh, Altamont. Um, so it just has this like weird, you know, almost bad good vibe energy. There's a there's a cold rain on and snow on that uh, same show. That's like just it's almost like heavy metal. Like it sounds almost like uh, like Sabbath or something. And there's a Masons children jam it's just wild and woolly um i've always it's 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 a little out of tune um i think that hard to handle you're talking about that that hollywood that um it's actually in hollywood it's at the hollywood bowl is the one you're thinking of mateo where the fans yeah are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just goes berserk that's woo, like the, woo. exactly I, I love that one but that you know this was this is a little just a little more kind of biker it's it's sort of very hell's angelsy and uh, and i wanted to get some pig in there um i've been mm-hmm. i've been listening to jesse jarno's and and uh the the you know the good old grateful dead podcast and they've been doing some stuff on pig um and they did the new one actually which i think came out today which i listened to when i was riding a bike uh is you know about uh, bear's choice and it's hard to handle on there from Fillmore east a little later and that's, you can hear it's a little more together, you know, like their guitar parts a little more together. Um, but yeah, it's another great tape. Another weird moment 
but uh, congratulations, Mateo. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you. good work, man. I was kind of rooting, I got to say, for the, the lone woman, because I've listened to a few of these. It's always dudes and Grateful Dead. Like, <laughs> how many dudes? I would have loved Thanks, to have Nick. presided over Liz's great victory. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate also, you know, that. I, the know. Grateful Dead scene is very dude heavy. I so mean, it's just, heavy. you know, the the business, the scene, the, yeah, everything. But we are, we are out there. Nick, I laughed at that mention in your piece of how Dave gets just a constant stream of emails from dudes. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like Nick's line about uh about the guys just up there in their baggy clothes eating spaghetti. I thought that was yeah. that was that was hilarious. I was trying to find a way to work that in somewhere. Oh, it didn't sound like they were didn't sound like they were eating spaghetti. So uh yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna have to look up this uh this article. I'm actually about two-thirds of the way through writing a memoir about about my experiences with that and taking my daughter on Grateful Dead tour and what that was like. And I I get stuck on it because I don't know how like authentic or honest I want to be. Like, do I want people really reading this? You know, I've kind of been low key, like not out as a deadhead, you know, at work and stuff like that. I am now, but um, but for a long time, it was almost like just saying that you were a deadhead was like, Hey, I do a lot of LSD, you know I mean? It just feels <laughs> like you're just putting something out there that isn't, you know, socially acceptable or part of the norm. And then, but now like looking back, I'm like, that was a very unique experience. You know, there weren't a lot of people who followed them around to every show. There were even less people who took their kids. Um, so I kind of want to put it out there, you know, and I just, um, yeah, do it, Liz. Do, do it, me. do it. Yeah. The more honest the memoirs, the better, you know, go right. It. Exactly. The best memoirs put it all out there. You yeah. Know? Like, I love Margaret Atwood and David Sedaris and stuff. So we'll see. Nick, are you pulling any punches on your memoir? I'm still figuring it out. It's, you know, it's very <laughs> hockey centric, uh, you know, it's about, it's, it's about, it's kind of about a beer league hockey team, but it's also, you know, about a life in hockey and it's about men and uh, men, both good and bad and fathers and sons. So there's, 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 you know, there's ugly stuff in it and sort of how to, how to handle that, but it has to be honest and it has to be pure, but you know, how, honest in what way. So I urge you to be honest and to let it all hang out, but you can also then be artful. Right. I mean, part of the story is that her dad got busted for LSD and went to prison for 20 years. So that happened in 91. Um, and it's like a unique perspective. And then being like a young single mom, you know, taking my kid to see the Grateful Dead and dealing with all of that. It just was, you know, it was a time. It was a rough time. And it isn't all great. It isn't all like happy rainbows, you know, and like fun times. I mean, there was like scary stuff that happened. And yeah, I dealt with some misogyny and some sexism at dead shows. And, you know, it's like struggling with how do I put that all out there? Well, I can't wait to read it, Liz. You got me from like the first sentence. You got me to read that book. So I'm sure other <laughs> deadheads will feel the same way. 
Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Easy I have to finish right it. I'll finish yeah. it someday. If nothing well, else, it'll be a gift to my daughter. Lovely. Thank you guys all so much. Nick, it was so great to get your perspective and to chat with you and your songs and everyone was just, uh, Mateo, congrats. Liz, great run. I Thanks really everybody. appreciate it. It's great to Thanks, meet you Jenny. all. Thank you. Thank you. Congrats, Mateo. Thanks for having me, and thanks for playing, as they used to say. All right, subscribe to Guest of the Year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For all the show links, including our YouTube channel, you can go to guestofyear.net. And if you want to be a contestant on the show, sponsor the show, or make comments and ask questions, email us at info at Thank you so much to Barry over at 492 Vintage. Again, that link is in the show notes. And thank you so much to our amazing guest setlist curator, Nick Palmgarten. Again, Nick's book... The Intangibles comes out in 2024 from Penguin Press. It's a memoir about his uh, beer hockey league. And until then, you can find him in The New Yorker. Shout out to Mason for curating the set list. Shout out to Dylan for drawing all the posters. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the amazing tapers whose recordings made this show possible. Congratulations to our back-to-back champ, Mateo. And to our other contestants, thanks for playing. And remember... It's all one song anyway. And I bet you good night. Good night. Good night. And I bet you good night. Good night. Good night.